I work with so many different people with so many different philosophies. I just help people find what's best for them. And I help them to feel as good as they can do with what they enjoy. That was Dawn Lerman. And we're talking about diet, nutrition, and her memoir, My Fat Dad, on episode 17 of the Namely Marley podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. I'm Marley. You know, this podcast is dedicated to living a creative, healthy, and passion-filled life. My goal is to share interviews, thoughts, and stories about inspired living. This covers things like diet, plant-based eating, passion, creativity, you name it. Everything to help us all learn what it takes to live our life to our best potential. Those are easy words to say, but not always easy to do. And so my hope is that this podcast helps. Today's guest is Don Lerman, board-certified nutrition expert and contributor to the New York Times Well blog. And recently, Don added something else to her title, author. She's published a memoir called My Fat Dad. Don's book is full of great stories about the struggles her dad went through with his weight. I know you'll find some of them funny and even more of them poignant and thoughtful. And I don't know, there's a lot of really great stories about her family and some of the recipes she's cooked over the years. It's a great read, and I hope you'll love this interview with Dawn today. I always find the topic of diet to be so interesting. I don't know, maybe it's because I've struggled with weight most of my life, and so I find it just really interesting to hear the struggles that others go through as well. But lately, it seems like I'm hearing a lot about the issue of mindfulness and eating. It's about the way we really listen to our body and learn to eat intuitively rather than having some external diet tell you what and how and how much to eat. I think that's what I consider to be the message of Dawn's book. Her grandmother, Beauty, yeah, that's her name, Beauty, would tell Dawn to put a beautiful meal on her plate and eat like she was a queen. Now that part I get because I love crafting beautiful plates of food. I think you can probably tell that though from my Instagram feed or the photos on our blog. I just have this, I don't know, I love putting food on a plate in a way that it looks very beautiful. I think I might make Dawn's grandmother proud. (laughs) Now the part I have the struggle with though is the eating more slowly, putting that fork down between each bite. I get a little too much into the food, I guess, while I'm eating. (laughs) Maybe I feel like I'm in a hurry, I don't know. But Dawn's interview has really encouraged me to work on that and I hope you'll be inspired by her interview as well. So let's get straight to it. Here's today's feature interview with Dawn Lerman. Hey everyone, I'm excited to have Dawn Lerman. She's a nutrition expert and New York Times well blog contributor who's written a very personal memoir about the relationship between family and food. Her book is called My Fat Dad and it will be released September 29th. She joins us this morning to tell us a little bit more about her book. Dawn, welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. Good morning, I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. And, um, you know, I know we're going to go into a lot of the details about your book and some exciting, I mean, to me, they're exciting things to talk about as far as nutrition and health. I think I love that stuff. But I thought it might be kind of a nice background for everybody if you could talk a little bit about your book and, and the background that went into that. 
Um, well, I grew up with a 450-pound father who was also like a big guy in the madman era of advertising. He wrote slogans such as Coke is it, uh, once you pop, you cannot stop for Pringles, um, you only go around once in life for Schlitz, um, Lego my ego, many, many, many um, famous iconic food slogans. And the very, wow. yeah, the, cool. and the very slogans he was marketing was, of course, like not helping his waistline. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Um, and then my mother, on the other hand, was a wannabe actress, and she just thought eating was a waste of time. Um, it wasn't like she was anorexic or anything. She just had no time. She, you know, she was a woman of like the 70s. She was like free spirit, like, you know, free to be you and me. Let's just eat a can of tuna fish on the run. She like grew up with a mom who was obsessed with like feeding her and sitting down for family meals. And my mom just had did not have time for any of it. You know, she wanted a career. You know, she just thought that was just, you know, cooking and cleaning was a big waste of time. So eating was just a necessity and that's it. <laughs> like some people live to eat, others live, you know, eat to live. So she yes. basically ate to exist, but it, there was no passion for food. And wow, what two huge disparities there, you know? <laughs> exactly, right. They couldn't be as opposite as possible. Yeah. And so somehow through all of that, you, you survived. How did you do that? Well, Every weekend, luckily for me, my parents went out every single weekend, so they would drop me off at my grandparents' house, and as soon as I walked into the door, the it was just an overwhelming smell of, like, chicken soup and kugels and homemade muffins and bread, and we would sit down to this lovely meal, always with, like, a tablecloth. We would always, like, she'd always, like, pin my hair back, and I just remember, like, I would feel so sad and like depressed the whole week. I was always sad as a little girl. I was always running away and hiding in my closet because I was so sad. And I'd go to my grandmother's house and I smelled her chicken soup and my world was transformed. Oh, that's amazing. And so uh, this is Beauty? Yeah, this is my grandmother Beauty. This is my maternal grandmother. My Your mom's mom. Yeah, the one she was rebelling against. <laughs> <laughs> It always comes around full circle. <laughs> uh, you know, now actually my mother would always be like, you've turned into beauty. I'm like, that's a compliment. You don't understand. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what it is with mothers and their own mothers. Right, it's this exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I have just been dying to ask you since I've been reading this, your book that you sent. Is, is, uh, is beauty her real name? No, her real name was Bessie. But when I was little, I would go you know, to her house every weekend. And as soon as I was, would come out of the car, she'd be standing at the top of her stairs, like, you know, in a little house with, like, she had, like, this cute little, like, porch, and she was wearing, like, a lacy nightgown and, like, a lacy apron, and she'd come dashing down the stairs, and she'd go, my little beauty, my little beauty, and so, you know, you know how a mom would be called mommy, mommy, so I thought that was her name, so from the time I could talk, she would run down the stairs going, my little beauty, and I'd look at her, and I'd go, beauty, beauty, and she'd go, my little beauty, and I'd go, beauty, and that's... Oh, that's so sweet. That's what I called her, and then... Everybody in the whole neighborhood, she would deliver cookies every Friday, and everyone would be like, Beauty's here, Beauty's here. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so you named her. I named her, and then it caught on, and then everybody in her little neighborhood of West Rogers Park called her Beauty, including my mom, my grandfather, everyone called her Beauty. Oh, wow, that's just amazing. I'm sure you were, <laughs> must have been very special to her for that. I was, and she was special to me. 
Oh, that's so cool. And so, and she's, it sounds to me like she's the one that really sparked your interest in cooking. Oh, yeah. Well, from the time I could talk or hold a spoon, as soon as I got to her house, we, you know, first we'd eat a meal and then we would make the dessert for Papa and my grandfather. You know, we'd core apples and cut them up and bake them with cinnamon for dessert. And on Saturdays, we would spend the whole day going to this area in Chicago called Devon Avenue, where like all the Jewish stores were at the time. And we would like the fruit stand and we go to the butcher and we go to the fishmonger and we go to the bakery and you know each one she had a relationship with each of these vendors and you know we would smell the strawberries we would you know we would make sure we would like make sure the fruit was ripe and then we'd go home and we'd unpack everything and unorganize and first we'd make the soup because that took the longest and we'd make the kogo then we'd like bake the muffins so yeah so it was the most amazing thing and I just loved how our kitchen smelled and how comfortable and warm I felt there and just I just always felt like transformed when I would have a bite of her soup like all the problems in the world would melt away Oh, that's amazing. That's a great story. And how lucky uh, for a child to get to experience. Very lucky. lucky. Yeah. I grew up in a small town. So, you know, there there really wasn't a lot of thought put into the food that we we did. Although I do recall going out and picking strawberries and how that felt really cool. Right. And you just remember that, right? These like few things, you know, even if they're like few, you remember those little memories, like, you know, whether it's like making a cake once or, you know, picking strawberries once or like having a bowl of soup at your grandmother's house. So these are the things I try and bring to my kids and the kids I work with every day. You know, just that memory and how important food is, not just because you're hungry and you want to eat or it tastes good, but it means something and it nourishes you for a long time to come. Yeah, absolutely. I love that story. And in fact, I have to tell you, I just think your story is so intriguing in general, because it's kind of the opposite of what I think a lot of people experience. It's typically, I, in my my experience, at least, it's typically the mother who is really dealing with her weight. And in your situation, it's kind of reversed. That is true. Yeah, my mom did not have any weight issues. My dad, yeah, my dad was 450 pounds. He was heavy. He was heavy as a child. He was heavy as an adult. He struggled with it in his, his entire life. But he also was, you know, an emotional eater. He, you know, he ate if he was happy. He ate if he was sad. He ate if a campaign went well. He ate if a campaign went bad. Um, you know, he grew up in a house where there wasn't a lot of, you know, communications and food was the way to show love. You know, Bubby loves you. Here's a brisket. Bubby loves you. Here's a banana bread. <laughs> right? Yeah, I made a hala, you know, so that was food was the form of communication. And he he has had a lot of love, didn't he? 450 pounds of love. love. But it was really, you know, in the end, it really wasn't the kind of love he really needed. Yeah, but and then I think you describe in the book how at a certain point, it became kind of a, it was a problem for him because he was in the advertising business. Yeah. um, So he was a major creative director at McCann Erickson. And he was working, as I said, on, you know, campaigns like, you know, Coke and Kentucky Fried Chicken. And he was presenting to the clients. And at one point, they're like, you're a genius. We love you. But you need to lose weight. You know, you're representing us and our products. And mm-hmm. this does not look good. So his company sent him to the fat farm at Duke University for six months. And he, lo- he went at 350. He came back at 175 pounds. He lost half his body weight. Wow, that is amazing. But he was there for a while, right? Six months eating three bowls of white rice a day. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Now, was he able to maintain that over the years? As my dad said, six months to lose, six minutes to gain. (laughs) Oh man, do I know that feeling. (laughs) He wasn't doing it in a healthy way. Now, he did never gain 
all of it back. So when he, at one point he weighed 450. Then when he went to the fat farm, he went, he went to, you know, what was 350. Then he went down to 175. And then he probably went back up to about, you know, 275, 300. He never went back to that 350, 450 point. So, but he certainly didn't keep the 175 off. That wasn't attainable. And he was eating, he went from eating 8,000 calories a day to 800 calories a day, which is not something someone can maintain. And he didn't really learn healthy eat, ha- eating habits. You know, he was in a very controlled environment where they taped the door shut at night so you couldn't get out to like go sneak for pizza. Oh, it was my gosh. Year in, they, yeah. You know, so it was a very controlled environment and it was in a supportive environment because there was lots of people doing the same thing. Um, but he didn't really have the skills, you know, to go out and do this in his life, nor should he, because if you only ate three bowls of white rice a day for the rest of your life, you would probably die. <laughs> so. Yeah. And and plus, you're kind of removed from all those triggers, right? Like those emotional triggers that happen in your home or wherever. That- well, also, they had groups, you know, they did have a lot of groups. They had all kinds of, you know, support groups and family groups. And I spent a month there. I was 10 years old, you know, and I went through all these groups, which is where I really discovered my passion for eating because I always had it. No one ever believed me. To this day, I have a salt allergy. When I eat salt, my feet and hands look like clubs. So I just feel nauseous. And I told them, they're like, oh, yeah, you have an iodine sensitivity. And my mother never believed me because we were always eating processed food. She's like, no, 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 no. It's nothing wrong with those TV dinners. They're good for you. I'm like, no, I feel sick. She's like, no, no, no. And then we're there. They're like, you cannot give her these TV dinners. They do not agree with her. And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. You people are fanatical. But after that day, I was like, look, the doctor said this, and I'm never eating, you know, processed food ever again. I don't care what you say. So you can have sea salt, right? Because it doesn't have iodine in it? Correct. But I can't really have any big proportions of salt. It just doesn't agree with me. But it's not like, it's not like you know, I'm going to go into anaphylactic shock and land up in the hospital. But it, it, it doesn't really feel good for me. So I, I don't really right. add salt. I add just like a lot of fresh dill and a lot of seasoning and, you know. I love dill. I love oh, my gosh. Right. So I'd rather use herbs than salt. Yeah, I think, you know, I've realized lately like uh, some fresh black pepper ground over can kind of give a salty flavor yeah, to things. I like I love different peppers, cayenne peppers. Yeah. You know, and a little bit of like a good Himalayan sea salt is okay, but you don't really need it. Once you eliminate salt from your diet, you don't really need it. You, you quickly get over that. Quickly yeah. over. It's the same as once you eliminate sugar. It takes like 28 days to change a habit, but then you could live without it. But Our taste buds are so malleable. It's amazing. Yes. Yes. But as I say, like, just because that's good for me doesn't mean it's good for somebody else. You know, yes. everyone's diets are very personal. But for me, salt doesn't agree with me. For some people, they might be, you know, more athletic or might sweat more. So, you know, for them, they really need, you know, the salt. So clearly your your childhood was like this perfect storm for you to grow up and to be involved in nutrition. <laughs> exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, from the time I was little, you know, I cooked with my grandmother at my parents' house. There was no food. And then when I was nine years old and we moved to New York, my grandmother was in Chicago. I thought I was going to die. So my grandmother was like, look, you need to learn to cook by yourself. And I'm going to send you these recipe cards. So every week she would send me like a recipe card, a $20 bill, and a grocery list. And I'd go to the store, and I'd start making it. She's like, if I'm making brisket for Papa, you can make brisket. And we would like do it together step by step. If I'm making banana bread, you can make banana bread. And I also had a little sister. And she's like, you need to do this for your sister because your mom's not going to do it. All right. So I used to do that. And 
it was New York City. It was the 70s. It was like free range kids. You could do what you want. I had a subway pass. And then I started exploring different parts of New York. I went down to Chinatown and Little India um, and Little Italy. And then I started learning about different spices and different cultures. And then I started kind of expanding on my grandma's recipe, you know, and kind of, you know, creating my own style. Now, how old were you when you were on the subway? Nine. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, never. <laughs> yes. Parents today would probably be <laughs> not doing, you know, they probably would be in trouble if they did that, <laughs> right? Exactly. But it was the 70s and everybody was doing it and, you know, parents were different. Yeah. I mean, it's probably really good for kids to have that freedom to roam around. It is, it is good. It is good. But it's also good to have. Yes. <laughs> it's also good for parents. There was no cell phones then. So it was good for parents to know where you are. But most of my friends' parents, like, you know, the moms were all reading The Fear of Flying, you know, by Erica Young. And they're all finding themselves. And, you know, <laughs> it was a very different time. But if you think about it, nowadays would be the time where kids should be able to roam around because they do have cell phones. You know, yeah, that's, that's true. But I think it's, it's parents. I think parents are older. Parents are yeah. parents. All all my friends, they all kind of grew up in the 70s kind of thing. And they're all a little bit nervous of, because everyone had bad experiences. So everyone's kind of, you know, it's kind of like, a, you know, it's, we're kind of going back to the way like our grandparents were a little more guarded, more home cooked meals. It's, you know, it's a different era. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely get it. Even from with my own child, I, I was very, you know, like, I look out the door, I want to be able to see you. <laughs> yeah, see you, right? Cause yes, we just know there's so much bad that could happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess it's finding a balance. You know, I know I'm very overprotective, but, you know, it's finding a balance. Yeah, and speaking of balance, I think you you talk a lot, at least I've read some things that you've written about uh, children and their diet. I mean, do you have any recommendations that you specifically like to discuss as far as children and nutrition? Well, I work with lots of children in my practice, and it ranges from kids with ADHD to pre-diabetes to gluten allergies to hyperactivities. Um, So I don't like to say there's no one diet for all. You know, I really spend a lot of time with each person before I, like, make a recommendation. But there are certain blanket statements, like, no matter what you do, everyone needs more fruits and vegetables. Right. Right. Everyone needs a diet, like, you know, high in, you know, complex carbohydrates, you know, healthy fats, like avocados and nuts, um, you know, and people need to cut down on processed foods, you know, processed sugars, you know, um, non-nutrient foods. But again, I don't like to say there's a specific diet for everybody. Everybody is different. But everyone can benefit from a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables. Oh, that's so good. And what about the way we eat? Because I, you know, I love the advice from your grandmother, that's <laughs> beauty, who talks about, you know, making sure that you eat a little more slowly. I think, I, I think if I read right, it was like in comparison to your father who was eating very voraciously. And <laughs> right. Well, my dad ate very voraciously. If we were going out for dinner, he would like eat a whole pizza before we went out because he was so scared he'd be hungry. You know, <laughs> but it, you know, it had nothing to do with the food. You know, that comes from yeah. deep rooted fear, you know, fear. Yep. My mother would eat, oh, we'd only eat in a taxi cab as we were like rushing somewhere else. And my grandmother would be like, when you eat, you want to pretend you're the queen of England. You want to put your hair back. You want to have a beautiful plate, a china plate. You know, even water was always served in a crystal glass. You want to drink tea with your pinky up. You know, you want to put your fork down between bites. You want to smell your food. And she would say, you know, good food is not fast. Fast food is not good. And if you know how to make a bowl of chicken soup, you can nourish yourself for life. So she really wanted me to know how to make things, really smell things, know what was in the food. Um, 
and be mindful when I'm eating. Did she eat like that? Every day, every meal, even if it was a snack, even if it was like strawberries, they'd be cut up beautifully. They'd be like, they'd be like plated. She'd always make everything look pretty. She'd put like, you know, like a light doily under the plate. She'd always put my hair back when I ate. So like it wouldn't be, you know, in my food. And we'd always talk about it. She'd be like, mm, don't these strawberries smell good? You could see these ones are really good today. Uh, you know, she'd always have me smell everything. And Wow, that's so smart because so ma- how many of us don't even pay attention to those kinds of things? Right, like every so I remember watching I Love Lucy with my grandmother. Yeah. The episode where Lucy was working in the factory and the chocolates kept coming. And she had to eat them fast. She's like, you never want to eat your food from a factory. She's like, if you want to have cookies, let's go to the bakery. And Giddle makes them. Giddle is going to tell us what she, how she made her cookies. And, ah, oh, they smell so good. They're out of an oven. She's like, but if they're in the package, they don't smell like anything. We don't want to eat those cookies. We want to make our own cookies. Or we want to eat Giddle's cookies when they come out of the oven. So that has always stayed with me. So people are always like, well, you're a nutritionist. You know, Do you not give your kids anything? Do you not eat yourself? I'm like, I eat the most wonderful things. I just... Like Michael Pollan said, my grandmother was saying this for years, just make them yourself or know where they're from. You know, we go to the local bakeries. We just try and eat good quality food and it's, you know, quality over quantity. Eat real food. Yeah. <laughs> food by quality over quantity, food that has like a fresh smell, a taste, you know where it's from. So did you know, I mean, when you got done with high school, you just knew that that's what you wanted to do? You wanted to go into nutrition or did you? No, I had several careers before. Ah. My sister was an actress and she was in Annie on Broadway and the first national tour. Um, And my dad was in advertising and I figured, well, I want to be an actress too. Yeah. And then my mother's like, I don't think you're talented. Why don't you go like production? Then you could kind of get like be on both sides. I'm like, okay, that's a good idea. So I went to Syracuse for TV production and I love that. But when I came out, I'm like, I still really want to be an actress. So I went to the neighborhood uh, playhouse in New York for two years. And I majored in acting. And then I actually wrote a book called The 12-Step Plan to Becoming an Actor in L.A. And it was about my experiences in acting. Um, I was really never good but <laughs> at acting. But I really understood, like, the marketing and kind of what went on it, you know, what went on behind the scenes because I had been in it for so long. Um Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So I realized like acting like any other business, like if you, you can't just sit around and say, I'm going to be an actress, you got to really do something. So I was always writing like little plays and performing in my own stuff. And I realized that's really like what I like where I had a little bit more control instead of like waiting for somebody to cast me. Yes. Um, so then I started a production company and I started producing commercials and music videos. And I did that for many years. And in doing that, I started doing a lot of documentaries and I started working with like a lot of abused kids and homeless shelters. And I decided like, that's what I was really good at giving back. So then I went and got a master's in drama therapy at at NYU. And then I worked in South Central for two years with gang members doing drama therapy where I worked with like the Bloods and the Crips and I'd have them like be in a scene where they had to be brothers and they had to love each other. Uh, And I just saw how that transformed lives. And, That's amazing. Yeah, and then after working with gang members, I got a really great job at a school uh, in Culver City in L.A. So we, I would do these groups with these kids, and if they, a lot of them had like ADHD and depression, and if they sat through the group for, that I did with them for 20 minutes, they would get to stick their hand in a big in a pumpkin and pull out, what would they get? A piece of candy. But these kids had ADHD. So I'm like, what if we didn't give them candy, right? Because then they're not going to be able to go to their next group. You know, and even if they're going to sit, it's going to be really hard for them to sit. Why don't we give them a sticker and like a piece of cheese? 
And then the school was really wonderful. And after time, we really kind of revised the snack program. And I started cooking with the kids. Uh, at the same time, I got pregnant. Then I moved from L.A. to New York. And I had kids. And I started making my own baby food. And I got really into nutrition. Um, but at that time, I was still doing a little bit of drama therapy. But then my dad got stage three lung cancer. Mm. And that's when I really started, you know, researching nutrition I was reading like every single book I started reading about the vegan diet and macrobiotics and juicing and I went back to school for nutrition and I feel like I really helped my dad and through that I'm like this is what I love this is what I've naturally done my whole life I would go to people's house they'd be like don't you want to put honey instead of sugar don't you want to use whole wheat flour instead of white flour don't you want to just put lemon in that sauce? Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Use brown rice instead of white rice. I'm like, and then I went to the school, Integrative Nutrition. I'm like, everybody in the room was like me. I'm like, oh my God, this is the first. It was like being in this like. I found my people. My people. I found my people. <laughs> and, and then my life really just took off after that. You know, I found people yeah. that were just like me who were as passionate about nutrition. And that's when I started Magnificent Mommies. And I started blogging. And then eventually started writing for the New York Times. And yeah, it kind of all came together. I don't know if you know the author, Victoria Moran. She's in New York as well. Well, she's actually from Kansas City, so I've met her a few times. And um, she said that we live our lives in chapters. And I feel like your life really, you know, exemplifies that. It really has, right. This is like chapter five. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like, well, I mean, actually, all of these chapters sound very interesting in and of themselves, but I love the one that you're in right now. (laughs) Right, I know, right. I feel like I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. It took me a long time to get here, which is like what I tell my kids. It's okay. You don't have to know, you know, at 11 years old, at 15 years old, you don't have to know what you're doing. There's so much to explore. You just kind of have to keep your, you know, your eyes open and an open heart and explore. Oh, there's so much pressure on kids to make a big decision at, you know, 18, 19 and what they're going to do the rest of their lives. And Exactly. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And it was, all, <laughs> all, all was my favorite book because everybody was in such a rush, even in high school, to get to college, to get to grad school. I'm like, I'm really just enjoying being like in high school. Like, I love my teachers. I love my classes. I love my friends. Like, I wasn't, in, I was never in a hurry. <laughs> That's probably why it took me such a long time. But I also thought, it, you know, it was important to enjoy where you're at and enjoy the journey. And do you feel like you, you can say that that's true for you now? I mean, writing the book sounds like a very stressful thing. And I imagine, you know, did are you able to find joy in doing that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was definitely stress involved, but yeah. a lot of joy. I mean, you know, writing at three o'clock in the morning by myself and kind of like remembering all these things. And I had most of these stories um, in other places, like in my journals, I had written a bunch of plays. So I, I kind of had them, but then kind of piecing them together in this way, it, yeah, it did. It was it brought me a lot of satisfaction, and then just it really like when I had when I came up with the idea, my grandmother was alive, and I kind of wrote the dedication in the first chapter, so she got to see that, and she got to hear that's it. Nice. But she didn't get to see the end, but got to see the beginning, so I was really glad. Oh, that's nice. It was nice that she was able to see that you, you know, got this journey started. And, and, right, and that's all she ever wanted for me. When I was in high school, I, at a college, I used to always write short stories. And she'd write, she'd send them to Oprah with a little note. I really think you'll like my granddaughter's stories. And of course, she never, oh. she never, she never heard back. So like, I, I, you know, I wish she was here to see it because, you know, it was really her wish for me was to like share my story and to share her recipes and, you know, teach my kids how to cook. Yes. 
I see that. That's really cool. Um, you know, I was I was uh, looking at your site. You know, you you contribute recipes to the New York Times, and um, I was looking at those, and I noticed that you have a lot of vegetarian and even some vegan recipes, and you mentioned that you've studied them. Um, I'm, but at the same time, I noticed that your book has recipes in it that are not vegan or vegetarian. I'm just curious where you kind of come out with all of that. Well, the the recipes, you know, go from you know it starts where the story starts. So you know the story starts in you know the 70s in new york so i kept uh, recipes in their traditional form every all the recipes in the beginning of chapters are recipes handed down to me by my grandmothers my aunts people in my life so i just did the recipes exactly as is and then as you go halfway through the books then they start becoming my own recipes and so as you see towards the end they're all much healthier and then i have a swap at the end on how to make any recipe healthier. So like if you're going to make the kugel, if you want to make it, you know, gluten-free, you can make it gluten-free. If you want to make it dairy-free, you can make it dairy-free. If you want to, you know, add a boost of omegas, you could add chia seeds or flax seeds. So it gives you a guide how to make it. But the stories really are, the recipes really come from the stories. And I kept everything in their traditional form. I see. That makes a lot more sense now. I now I understand that. I loved your article in the in the New York Times where you mentioned that you made vegetarian versions of uh, a meal for Rosh Hashanah, and that your dad was like, eh, "It's not." The- <laughs> I mean, that sounded like it was probably his first time to try a vegetarian like, like, take on meat. <laughs> like this, yeah, this isn't a brisket. I'm like, but look, it, I mean, it really looks like a brisket. He's like, yeah, but it just doesn't taste like one. And then he came up with like a slogan for dog food about my. About the I know. <laughs> but you know, it was a, you know, it's a learning curve, and as a lot of people, you know, I've gotten a lot of letters from you know my blogs, and some people are like, "It's brisket, leave it alone." I'm like, "You could absolutely make your brisket." Uh, I do. I make all kinds of briskets. My daughter is vegetarian, so I'll make her a you know a seitan brisket. My, my son loves meat; he craves meat, so I'll make him like a grass-fed brisket. So the whole point of my book is it's about tradition and passing on recipes. It's not, there's no one way to do it. It's not a dogma. Just like I say, when I work with people, I don't prescribe to any one way of eating. Some people, gluten-free is good for them. For others, it's not. Some people, vegetarian diet. For other people, they really need, you know, the iron and the vitamin B and they can't, you know, survive on that. Um, So my recipes, that's why there's a swap chart. So you could adopt any of my recipes into you know, whatever your lifestyle is, but it's really about the memory. So my recipes are really about the memory, my memories, but, you know, creating your own memories. Yeah, that's great. That's so good. And, you know, I'm vegan and my husband's vegan and my daughter's vegan. But, you know, I, I've, I'm i on the same boat as you. I, I get a lot of flack for saying these kinds of things, but um, I don't think everybody's going to be vegan. I, I, you know, if I could raise my magic wand, it would be great if I could make that happen. But I don't think that's the case. And I have family members who are not and I love them dearly. And so, you know, I just I feel like um, it's like you say, it's good for everybody to find a diet that works for them. And I think the more that people can include fruits and vegetables, and the more they can have meat free meals, the the better it is for everybody. My grandmother used to say live and let people live. So yeah, you make your own choices for yourself. But it's not your job to be a preacher. You could inspire people right. if you believe in something. But right. she's like, but when you make it dogma is when people don't, you know, don't listen. Yes. You know, she, my grandmother was a very traditional Jewish woman in some ways, but she didn't go to temple. She went sometimes on the holidays. But she's like, to me, my tradition is in my bowl of soup. And she'd be like, the rabbi <laughs> screams at me. You know, beauty, beauty, why don't you come to temple more? And she's like, Rabbi, 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 when I'm alone, why don't you come to visit me more? She's like, 
<laughs> oh, good point. Yes. You know, what works for one person doesn't work for another. You know, you just have to right. live true to yourself and not criticize people. And yeah. as she said, live and let people live. And if you believe something, inspire somebody. If you want to convert somebody yes. to veganism, if that's what you believe, don't preach it. Bring them a vegan cake, you know. Yeah, right? but, but to show respect for people and their own decisions, it, I think, is important. Exactly. But yes, I, I also like, you know, making a, a vegetarian brisket is right on my right. <laughs> list. I love that. Right. It's delicious. Yes. Our family dinners are always very interesting because we have uh, some people are gluten free, some people are vegetarian, some people are vegan. And so, you know, <laughs> that's what I say is like, you're right. It's like as I, I work with so many different people with so many different philosophies, like I just help people find what's best for them. And I help them to feel as good as they can do with what they enjoy. I love that. And now I have to ask you this question because you have had this background of varying kinds of, you know, adventures or things that, you know, you've done. Do you find that now that you're involved with food, do you think that it gets less respect as far as an industry is concerned? So I think it gets less respect as opposed to video production or, you know, you mentioned that you were involved, uh, you know, in creating commercials or things like that. I'm just, that's kind of more of, I, in my mind, like a business kinds of activity. I'm not sure. I think food is such a big thing now, but yeah. people hear that I'm a nutritionist. The first thing they're like, oh, we're going to put away their cookies. We're not going to eat them. Oh, I, guess- <laughs> I get that too. As a vegan, I get that you a lot. I want to eat in our house. And I'm like, it's so not about that for me. Yeah. Food is about like the memories and about connecting people. And if you're disconnecting with people because of what you're eating, that's not the point because, you know, creating memories around a food is like such a wonderful thing. In my daughter's school, they have a festival called Casa Latina and everyone comes and they bring like rice and traditional dishes. They're like, do you want to come and make our dishes healthier? I'm like, I don't think it's really about that. Like, this is your culture. This is your celebration. Like, I think it's good to, you know, do what works for you. Like on another day, if you want to ask me how to make some of your recipes healthier, I would love to, but I don't think it's a time to only eat like fruits and vegetables when it, you know, it's celebrating your culture and your traditions and like the memories you grew up on. So it should never be a barrier that, you know, that separates people, but it should be a way to bring people together. And I like to like excite people and inform people. Like my favorite thing is for people to be like, I hate kale and then I'll make kale chips. They're like, oh my God, this is so good, right? Yes, absolutely. Or you make a really delicious kale salad with exactly. walnuts. And or just like, I would never like eat cashews or, you know, and then I'll make like a soup where I cream the cashews and it tastes like cream. They're like, this is the best thing ever. You know? <laughs> so that's what I really like to do. I really like to excite people, inspire people, show people new ideas, but I never like to be the voice of no. Yeah, I have to tell you, I do think nutritionists do have kind of a bad rap because it does seem like, <laughs> like when you bring, when people say that, that right. people just jump to these conclusions. Right. I'm like, I never want to be the voice of no. I want a voice of like inspiration and just showing new ideas and helping you come to conclusions what works for you. Oh, I love that. And in fact, I think if more family dinners were like that, I think there would be less stress around it. <laughs> right. I think it's just that, you know, food and family and stress, they just all seem to go together. No matter how well you like think you planned it out, there's always... <laughs> Why is that? It's just like dynamics. Everyone goes to who they were at like five years old. It's like, <laughs> yes. it's like crazy. Like that's what so many people wrote in my New York Times. They're like, we love your ideas. But this is what happens at our dinners. I'm like, I know, I know. Like no, when I visit my mother in California, it has it hasn't changed at all. I'm like, Mom, I'm writing a book about food. That's why food is important to me. She's like, I know, but you just ate four hours ago. I'm like, I know, but I'm gonna eat now, and I'm gonna take my kids to eat now. She's like, but you just ate four hours ago. 
I'm like, she's like, I haven't eaten anything all day. I'm like, again, <gasps> that's not good. That works for you, but that doesn't work for me. <laughs> Like, I don't understand. I just don't understand. You spend so much time thinking about food. I'm like, yes, I do. It's important yes. to me. It really- a lot of people do. <laughs> like, she just doesn't get it. So I just realized there is, you know, she loves my book. She's read it more than anybody. But you can't change somebody who doesn't want to be changed. And nor is it my job. You know, right. people, you know, people come to change when they need to. That's so true. And I think, you know, that's kind of her MO. That's how she's been operating. So And it works for her, right? Yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. But I just, I think those dynamics around a family table can be uh, really interesting. I, I, like I notice in my own self, like how I will revert back to like, you know, like eating too fast or all these things that I used to do when I was a kid. I felt them, all these emotions, they just come back up. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, you talked about earlier on, like when you kind of start to reduce salt and when you kind of, you know, start to reduce sugar, your taste buds really change and accommodate that. And I find it's so interesting, like at a at a family dinner, how I will notice that because I will have a dish I haven't had in a long time and how it doesn't even taste as good to me as I remember. Right, right. Because you ch- you're right. It changes. But sometimes it's like the smell. Like sometimes like yeah. I'll go to a Jewish deli and I don't really like chicken soup at a Jewish deli, but I love the smell. Right. Because yeah. This reminds me of being with my two grandmothers in Chicago at this like one place, you know, and how we all sat together. And so it reminds me of that. But then when I taste it, I'm like, oh, it's too salty or, you know, it's not as good as mine. But something about the smell and just being there it just takes it's kind of soothing and takes you back in time and it takes you back to like a happy place. And and sometimes it's really not even about like the taste or what's in it. It's just really about like the memory, like, you know, and, and where you were at that time. Yeah. I love that. Don, that's a great way to end this interview. I just have one last question. What sure. What inspires you? What inspires me? Be- besides food, because we've really got that topic covered. What inspires me besides food? Oh, my God. I think about food 24-7. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> wake up. What am I going to cook? What am I going to buy? What am I gonna... What inspires me is hearing people's stories. Um, I have had a lot of different professions, from acting to producing to drama therapy to now nutrition and writing, but it's always been about what are people's stories? Like, I love he- hearing people's stories. And in drama therapy, one of the things was it's like hearing people's stories and helping them transform it. So if I work with clients now and they're like, but I've always been fat. I'm like, well, how are we going to transform that story? You mm-hmm. always were. Okay, but what do you want to be? Oh, I love it. So that. I think that's, I think, you know, what do you want to be in your next, you know, in your act too? So I think, yeah, hearing people's stories is really what inspires me, helping people, working with people. And it's never, it's never a one-way street. It's always a give and take. I don't know if you read this story in my um, book about taking in the homeless man. Tell me about it. I've, I've read it, but I don't recall right now. Uh, well, when my sister was uh, was in cast of the show Annie, my mother and sister went on tour for two years. Yes. And I was left at home with my dad, who was very busy and didn't really have a lot of time. He was like, yeah. you know, he had late meetings. He was traveling. And so I was 13 and I was left on my own in New York City. And every day I would walk home and I'd pass this homeless man and we became great friends. And I started out thinking I was really helping him, but he transformed my world and we became great friends and he he eventually came and he stayed with me and he taught me how to make Sunday sauce and how, and how to chop onions so you never know who you're going to learn from and you never know what your story is going to be but you always know you can transform your story if you want to and there is no such thing as it's always been so it's always going to be and that is a great story about not judging a book by its, it's cover absolutely. right I mean everything has an opportunity to have influence in our lives exactly 
Everything and everybody, yeah. Right, and we learn from everybody. You know, I think, yeah, interacting with people and hearing about people is like the most, you know, incredible thing. Well, Don, that that is such a great story, and you are definitely an inspiration to me. I love this. Well, thank you. So I think I, I'm really excited that your book is coming out September 29th. That's a release date? Yeah, so it's called My Fat Dad, A Memoir of Food, Love, and Family, and it comes out September 29th, but it's on pre-order now, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And if you're in New York, on October 5th, I'm having a book signing at Barnes & Noble's on the Upper West Side, Monday, October 5th at 7 p.m. That's wonderful. Dawn, how can people find you online? Um, you could find me um, at my website, dawnlerman.net, on Facebook, Dawn Lerman, on Twitter, at Dawn Lerman. And uh, I have a column on the Well blog of the New York Times if you go to Dawn Lerman Author. That's wonderful. Dawn, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. This was so wonderful. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks to Dawn Lerman for being my guest on today's episode of the Namely Marley podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, just head over to the show notes page at namelymarley.com forward slash podcast. I hope you're loving the Namely Marley podcast. If so, it would mean the world to me if you'd head over to iTunes and give it a review. Also, you can spread the word about the Namely Marley podcast on Twitter or Instagram or even Facebook. Your shout outs really mean a lot. You inspire me, so I hope today's show is helpful and inspirational to you as well. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.